Welcome to Myanmar in a Potshell, the podcast that puts current developments in Myanmar into context. My name is Rodion Ebbikhausen, and the title of our show today is No Chance for Peace, Myanmar's Long History of Violence. I would like to discuss the topic with Stein Tönnesen, who is a historian and peace researcher at the Peace Research Institute Oslo. His research has focused on Vietnam, peace in East Asia and conflict in the South China Sea and in Myanmar. His work on Myanmar has been published in the Journal of Contemporary Asia, Small Wars and Insurgencies, Prio Policy Briefs and as Prio Blogs. Tony Waters, our second guest, is a professor of sociology who has taught in California, Thailand and Germany. While in Thailand, he worked closely with PhD students from Myanmar, developing research topics about peace in that country. He is also an occasional contributor to the Irrawaddy magazine, criticizing the nature of international aid to the Myanmar peace process between 2015 and 2021. Thank you very much for joining us today, and let's start with the discussion. So the coup of February 1st, 2021 can be seen as an opening of a new chapter in the long history of violence in Myanmar. And according to your assessment, Tony, what makes this chapter different from previous ones? Well, part of it is that we are in the internet age. We've had a period of 10 years in Myanmar when there's relatively openness, when uh, the Tenzin government relaxed a bit, and finally when the NLD came back in. At that same time, there was an internet revolution, and Myanmar people became very much part of the larger world in ways that they had not been before, both because of government policies from the military governments, but also because the technology was not there. I'm still in ready contact with my former students and or students in Yangon. I talk to friends and people in Yang Myanmar all the time. And you know, the Myanmar government, for all its reputation for being an all-seeing eye, doesn't seem capable of controlling things like they have in the past. So in that way, I think it's different. Okay. And Stein, would you say there are also some similarities and continuities uh, which we see coming up again? Absolutely. Uh, but first, I agree with Tony that the biggest change has been the internet revolution that came about when the Tencent government uh, invited bids for uh, telecom providers and you got competition. Uh, but the main constant is the presence of the Tatmado, the armed forces of Myanmar, which has been an extremely brutal military all the time since the Second World War and has been fighting various groups uh, up on, uh, during that time. The um, Tatmadaw was engaged for a long time in fighting both ethnic armed groups and communist forces, but the communist rebellion ended in 1989 and dissipated into several ethnic armed groups at that time. What is really new after the coup in the conflict pattern is that there is now again a war between the Tatmadaw and the Bamar ethnic majority population in central areas of Myanmar. Okay, so thank you. And now I would like to take a step back, and maybe this might be a naive question, but why is peace so important? And uh, are the interests or reasons 
of actors in Myanmar to strive for peace the same, or do they have different interests to go after peace or for peace? Well, I definitely have some views on that because I led a big program on East Asian peace uh, funded by a Swedish uh, foundation until 2017, where I looked into the reasons why East Asia, which was the central region for war during the first phase of the Cold War, developed into a situation of relative peace and then also obtained an enormous economic growth. In the East Asian region, I found some uh, uh, some exceptions, and the exceptions were mainly areas of the Philippines, of South Thailand, and above all, Myanmar. So Myanmar is an exception in the region. It has never entered the kind of policies that the other East Asian re countries have done, uh, and that has led to peace and economic growth. But the military leaders in Myanmar became aware of this in the 1990s first and then started developing a project for developing uh, a constitutional a transition to constitutional rule. And that was what happened under Thein Sein when he became president. He was a former general in 2011. Uh, and in that Face, I think Myanmar made an attempt to join the East Asian peace and therefore also gain part in the kind of prosperity that has characterized the rest of the region. So you mentioned that um, after peace comes prosperity in a way and brought prosperity to most uh, East Asian countries. Um, but I would like to know, like, do you think, Tony, that... Um, the interests or why people are striving to achieve peace in Myanmar is the same for everybody? Uh, or are there different interests why to go for it or try to reach peace? Saying it, peace is an absence of violence so that prosperity can take place is one way to look at it. Uh, but it's also rooted in how people see themselves, how they see their identities and who they see themselves as being. Maybe it's a little bit fresh on my mind, but I'm working with a manuscript right now from one of my students, which has to do with the nature of Burmanization policies adopted in the 1960s by General Ne Win. These were adopted as being among the more harsh. I mean, in the 1950s, Myanmar was just another Southeast Asian country, and they took a hard turn with the Ne Win coup, and he came in and said, "We have to reach back to the glories of the great Burma kingdoms," and go forward from there because we are the greatest people. And by the way, the people who are in the highlands, they can be part of us, but they have to be on our terms. And it's a Burmanized society. What my student is writing, he's um, saying that the Burmanized schooling system, the Burmanized culture he grew up with when uh, Ne Win shut down the country, he believes that it's the source of many of their problems today, why they can't reconcile, that there's this ingrained 30, 40, 50-year curriculum, government structures, military structures, all focused by, as uh, Stein mentioned, the military, the centrality of the military being key to Burmanization. And his question is, can we really address these problems until we get to that point? Now, implicit is that what was just mentioned was that, you know, the other Southeast Asian countries have more or less transition to someplace except 
in the which Stein said the northern Philippines and southern Thailand. Why can't Burma do that? And um, part of the reason is the Burmanization policies and and how resistant they are to change. I would like to pick up this interesting point, like saying there is a history uh, which we have to always think about if we think about peace in Myanmar. So. There has not been a time since the end of the colonial period in 1948 when there was peace countrywide. Although, so what what explains this ongoing perpetual state of affairs that fluctuates between civil war, local conflict, uh, extending um, and going back and forth, and and maybe how this is connected to to the colonial area? Um, era. Um, so, Tony, you mentioned some points. Maybe Stein, as you are a historian, can you say something about this? Well, uh, Myanmar is exceptionally diverse ethnically, with many uh, ethnic groups. And the domination by the Bamar is not as strong as it is by the Han Chinese in China or by the Viet in Vietnam. Uh, so the Bamar have all the time had to relate to quite strong other ethnic groups within what they consider their own national territory, and particularly on the borders. The system that Tony described that was established under the Nevin involved Bamar domination and also Bamarization of schooling, education, and so on. But at the same time, it also established ethnic categories in a very strict and rigid way so that the idea of belonging to one ethnic group in opposition to others became so important for people and it also often involved the quest for a homeland. This extremely strict uh, ident identity building on many levels in Myanmar has led to an enormous suspicion between ethnic groups because so much politics is involved and because of the presence of all the ethnic armed groups that mainly defend their own local interests. So this is one of the explanations for uh, the weakness of peace in Myanmar, the absence of peace in Myanmar. Uh, And we may perhaps get later to some recent changes in this that are interesting and perhaps promising. Definitely, we would like. To, I would like to pick up. So, um, I would like to know, like, there is a, in a way, maybe someone can say in Myanmar we can observe a very extreme kind of identity politics. Mm which has been played out over decades. Um, I would like to go back a little bit more to the history. Um, there has been this divide and rule by uh, the colonial power, uh, by the British colonial power as well. They used it. So would you say that this is part of the legacy uh, the country faces today? Maybe, Tony? Yeah, I would definitely take it back to the British times. And the ethnic categories were really emerged and used by the British censuses in the early 1900s. They would go through and say, which, what are you? And then classify accordingly. Um, they went up into the highlands and said, if you classify as being Shan or Kachin or Karen, then you, well, not Karen, it would be Shan or Kachin or Kareni. You now have your own semi-independent state in a different relationship with the British colonial powers. If you're at Bamar, you're going to be through direct rule in the lowlands, and we're going to bring in 
our British officers and their Indian subalterns to rule because we don't trust you. I think it's also important to remember that the time of total British colonialism in Myanmar was fairly brief. It was really from 1885 when the conquest was finished until 1947 with a interregnum in between for the, uh, the, the Japanese for four years. And that the memories of you know, what the palace was in, in, in uh, what was then Mandalay and before are still quite strong. And it was before the British invasion started in 1823, Myanmar was a regional power. You know, they had just conquered Thailand. They were fighting the Chinese and on and on and on. And uh, they had, they thought quite highly of themselves. I don't know that they saw themselves as Bamar or rather part of a dynasty, but they were a regional power. And uh, the others paid tribute to them and uh, knuckled under and the Chinese sent embassies and the Thais were defeated. So. Okay. So before I come later to this Point, Stein mentioned that there is a new dynamic uh, in this identity thinking in Myanmar. I would like to make a jump to the to the um, Tainsein time. So in 2015, the uh, government under Tainsein negotiated the nationwide ceasefire agreement. And um, how would you assess this nationwide ceasefire agreement? Maybe now looking back, because now we are in a totally different time. But how would you? assess what, what has been achieved and what was maybe missing or what was a failure in this. Um, maybe Stein, you can start. I uh, have a positive assessment of the peace process that started under the Tainsein government and that was led mainly by uh, Aung Min. Uh, this process of ceasefire talks between a number of groups and the government and the military were promising at that time. The signing of the nation nationwide ceasefire agreement, so-called nationwide ceasefire agreement in 2015, was a big mistake. Uh, it did not, it was not inclusive. It included only a certain number of groups and it did not include one of the main negotiators on the other side, the Kachin Independence Organization or Kachin Independence Army. The reason why it was concluded before it was ready was that uh, the Tainsein government faced an election. And this election then brought a new government to power that was never able to uh, continue this process. So a relatively promising peace process was aborted partly by the NCA. That's my point of view. And how do you assess the NCA and um, what happened, Tony? Uh, I think it was good to have tried, probably. But obviously it was not enough. Um, I think that the central problem in Myanmar today is the Tatmadaw, with the, with the army being dominant. Um, They, do, they did not negotiate as equals. The Tatmadaw were negotiating as the controlling of the government. The NCA was coordinated through the government. And uh, when they signed ceasefires and had demobilization exercises, the assumption was, well, that means the Kachin and the Karen and the Shan, they demobilize while uh, the Tatmadaw maintains their control and maintains their international relations. This is, I think, is a flaw in the how these types of 
the UN and other organizations, which always assume a nation state, how they can organize uh, peace negotiations. They always start with a nation state. But in the Myanmar, there's not really a nation state. There's this fragmentation. Some things are nations and a lot of things are not states, but they're all players in the, in the, in the drama, including the Tatmadaw. So I still see this Tatmadaw as being the central problem. Yes, in this, in this process toward the NCA, there was an agreement to go for federation. Uh, that was a positive aspect of it, I think. Uh, federation is not a solution, but it's a kind of formula that you can use for establishing uh, solutions on many levels uh, once you have agreed that it should be a federation. But let me, let me just say something about my view concerning the Tatmadaw. Uh, the Tatmadaw, as I said, has been an extremely brutal military force that has all the time since its inception uh, mainly repressed internally and been more of an internal repressive force than a force to defend Myanmar international against its other, other possible threats. But there was a process within the Tatmadaw in... Um, the 2000s and up until 2011 that really aimed at the transition of some kind. And when the Tainsane government was formed, the military leaders started to rival each other. So uh, Tan Shui, the dictator, stepped down and he made... Min Lang, the head of the military forces, Tain said, named the head of government, and Schwiman, the head of parliament. They were not on the same line. So you started to get a more diversified politics around the military. This, this is somewhat similar to what happened in Indonesia when Indonesia made its transition from military dictatorship to more uh, more democratic governance and decentralized governance. And one of the most interesting examples of this is when Tain Sein suddenly announced that he would stop the Mitsona Dam project that China had invested heavily in. This had to do with his rivalry with Schwimmel in parliament. And the parliament and the play, interplay between parliament and government was extremely interesting in the Tainsein period. This ended in 2016 when Aung San Suu Kyi's party had won such a landslide victory and she became state councillor. And instead of this diversified politics with an interested parliament, you got a parliament which was completely controlled by Aung San Suu Kyi in some kind of cooperation with Schwemann who had lost election became but be entered into a cooperation with her and there was a stalemate between the NLD with its majority in parliament and the um, military now led by Minang Lang who was not a politician but uh, had responsibility for pursuing the same repressive functions that the Tatmadaw had had in the past. So this stalemate then also aborted the positive development that we had seen. So if I got you right, you would say that in a way the election came at the wrong time. 
Or... And there, was, there was also an additional thing about that election, and that was that Myanmar used the first-past-the-post electoral system instead of a proportional system. So this meant that the NLD won more seats than their percentage of votes. The percentage of votes were somewhere above 60%, and the re- number of representatives in parliament became almost 80%. So they gained the majority. If the NLD had had a little less than 50% of the seats, you might have had a continuation of politics of the kind that you had seen development developing under Tensein with Aung San Suu Kyi as an opposition leader. And the USDP, the pro-military party, would also have had a fair representation. Now you got the military represented in parliament only by 25% uh, appointed members in uniform, who always voted as a bloc and who did not see themselves as politicians. This is, this 2015 election destroyed parliament as a positive force. So, and then maybe, Tony, you can jump in here or say see your point. So, when Aung San Suu Kyi took over in 2016, she started this big peace initiative, the second Panglong conference, but... I don't know, according to your assessment, why did the meetings or what was the result of these meetings? And has this to do with this parliamentary, um, what is like, there was the parliament was in a dead end somehow, yeah, stuck, there was no, so would you say it has to do with that? Or is there another point which did, why the second Panglong conference did not bring more peace to the country? Well, I, I'm very intrigued by Stein's hypothesis. I thought it was uh, interesting. I haven't heard that framed that way before. Um, Why didn't the Panglong? I, I have real doubts about whether Myanmar is set up to be a federal country in which there's sharing of power uh, between semi-independent entities. I mean, it seems like it, I, this perhaps comes from me living in Thailand, where you have a very centralized government in Thailand. You also mm-hmm. have peace. People respect it. It's underneath the king, who's a constitutional monarch stronger sometimes perhaps now than at other times but nevertheless you know there's a there's a parliament and military and many of the same structures and um when i talk to my students you know um especially the ones from the knu portion i don't see them ever able to compromise in a manner that you would expect of a of a uh, federal union where you delegate part, their, their main concern, their main fears are of the top madal, the lack of trust that's there. Um, so I really wonder whether entities like that with Kautule and the KIA territories, which I know less about, whether there's room for real compromise. I know a little bit about the Shan areas too. I've met uh, Kunsai several times. And I have real doubts about whether given the independence that these entities have enjoyed de facto independence for the last decades and the fact that they have their own standing militaries, how far they can go with compromises, making the compromises necessary for federalism, which is just kind of a question mark, I guess. Yeah. I would like to pick up a thought, uh, Tony, you have had two questions ago. You said that in a way that Tatmadaw sees itself as a representative of the whole nation, but you would rather put it like the Tatmadaw is one big um, force in the country uh, and there are others as well. So 
which I think leads a bit to the question like Myanmar has never been a nation or a nation state in the sense of a, um, a unified nation. So my question would be like, maybe it's a chicken and egg problem, but do you have a nation first and then peace or do you have to have peace first and then get a nation? So what, what would be your take on that? Um, chicken, and and egg, chicken and egg is a good way to put it. Um, I, I just don't know for Myanmar, I, I haven't reached it. I'm an academic, so I don't need to reach conclusions, right? So <laughs> I just don't know what the path forward is in a place like Myanmar. Again, I coming from Thailand, I look at Thailand and say they have relative unity. If you'd gone back to the time of uh, the British came into Myanmar, you would have found Thailand to be a very similar Buddhist kingdom uh, with a lot of the same ethnic factions. But, you know, over the period when they were independent from say 1880s until 1960s or even the 1980s. So those were sometimes crushed violently, but also through peaceful coercion or peaceful policies, extending schooling and other things using the central Thai language. Myanmar with its history of colonialism and then World War II has never had a chance for those unified structures to emerge. Um, and I think, would like to see a search for that. I don't see anything inherently wrong with a centralized government like Thailand has or France has or any number of other countries. But, and I don't see anything inherently wrong with the federal system. It works in a lot of places, but I just don't know what is right for Myanmar. And can you help us solve the chicken and egg problem, Stein? I, I, I tend to try to look for uh, something that can give hope. I have often great difficulties with that in Myanmar, um, partly when I meet the extremely strong uh, hatred and suspicion among ethnic groups, and above all when I face and see all the extreme violence that the Tatmadaw has used since the coup, and also see how the resistance against the Tatmadaw has now moved into a more and more violent phase. Uh, but there have been surveys that were done during the Tainsain period of people showing that they also have some kind of all um, Burmese or all Myanmar national sentiments when they face competition with Myanmar and other parts of the world. And one... Um, one survey showed that many people in Rakhine, Kachin, Kain, although they primarily had their own ethnic identity, were also willing to fight for uh, Myanmar as a whole if facing an external enemy. And I've also seen that the um, kickboxer from Kachin, this tiger, he is quite popular in the whole country. So the kind of uh, sports identification with the nation as a whole exists. Um, but it's, it's a really tough uh, challenge. But let me now say what I mainly think is, is hopeful. That's what has happened since the coup, military coup of um, February. Um, among the uh, opponents, those who have formed the National Union government and the uh, National Unity Consultative Council, uh, 
they have gone through uh, talks that have got quite far in the direction of creating understanding among, at least on a leadership level, of different groups. And this has to do with the weakening of the Bamar, because the Bamar resistance, they depend on ethnic armed organizations for help and have therefore embraced the federal idea and even engaged themselves in defending the rights of the Rohingya in a way that we have not seen before. So I see an attitudinal shift among the new uh, generation, Generation Z, that has come up with the internet revolution and also new leaders coming up after the NLD was kind of liberated from the autocratic um, controlling behavior of Aung San Suu Kyi. And Tony, do you have a similar optimistic assessment that there is a kind of new unity and maybe trust which might in the long run lead to peace within the NUG, the NUCC? But I, because I would say like major stakeholders are missing, uh, still missing, maybe they will become on board. And I see here and there, there are some cracks within the NUG and the NUCC. But but do you have a similar optimistic assessment as Stein has? Uh, I still go back to the way that the and I see the Tatmada is almost being separate from what we think of being as the Bamar people. Most Bamar are not embedded in the Tatmada. The Tatmada have withdrawn to Nepida. They have their own schools, they have their own hospitals, they have their own institutions, and they don't necessarily mix with other Bamar people that much. You know, they take in young men when they're quite young, and they socialize them to be soldiers for life, and then their families are drawn into it. And so it's almost as if it's an ethnic group within an ethnic group. Um, and I think when you look at it, then it's in a minority within a majority, and they have that monopoly over power that the UN grants a nation state you know, that, and they have a monopoly over, you know, the legitimate, what, what the international community views as legitimate and the Bamar people do not, you know, I've had the same experience with Stein where I have people I really like and I've talked to them mm. and they will admit when I hear a bomb go off, I think good, somebody just died from the other side. And that's a tragedy to have to have kind people like this think that way. Say, I like it when bombs go off. No, that's not good. And they and they can't project themselves into the mothers of those soldiers or those villagers who may have just died because the hatred is so deep. And these are Bamar people. These are not just uh, ethnics. Ethnics have had this experience for a long time. So that's why I'm a little bit more pessimistic than Stein, though I agree with him that you have to always look for the way forward. Myanmar will be peaceful one day. Um, These things don't go on forever, though it seems like it in Myanmar since, you know, they, they talk about 1949. But even before that, in the in the uh, British period, and especially the Japanese period, Myanmar was extremely violent. This is, It's a country which has had no peace, you know, since perhaps ever, you know. It's not just a 70-year civil war. It goes, it goes deeper than that. People are used to fighting. They're used to pulling within themselves to defend themselves and in cultivating these fears of the other. The, the pro-military party, uh, USDP, got s some 22-23% of the votes. Uh, 
you don't often see the percentage of votes because in most reports from Myanmar from the elections you see the proportion of seats in parliament but that's skewed so around one fifth of the population supported the pro-military party and then you have uh, almost 80 percent uh, supporting mostly the NLD but also to a great extent ethnic parties particularly in Shan state and Rakhine state where the ethnic parties were really strong uh, but I think I agree with Tony that the Tatmadaw has lost probably quite a lot of the support from the 20% as well uh, because of its behavior after the coup. And now in the areas where most of the fighting is taking place in Sagain region and Magway region, which are mainly Bamar areas, um, the soldiers from the Tatmadaw are outnumbered by one to five or something like that because the people's defense forces are so strongly embedded in the local society. Uh, but the Tatmadaw is a hierarchic, highly controlled organization with generals at the top whose main mission is to keep the Tatmadaw as the dominant institution in the country. And then it has soldiers who, to a very great extent, voted for the NLD. So the common soldiers, and who are also influenced by their families, are not necessarily of the same opinion, or I don't definitely think they are not of the same opinion as their leaders. But they face great risks if they defect or if they desert. Still, quite a number have done that. I think the Tatmado is now in uh, perhaps the worst situation politically in Myanmar since 1948 when it almost lost Yangon to the Karen army. It, it faced a big crisis also in 1988 to 91, of course. Uh, but it's in the crisis now, and I would not exclude the possibility that something might also happen at the top of the um, Tatmadaw if the NUG and the ethnic armed groups are able to work together. Unfortunately, they have found it very difficult to work together in the past, and at the moment, the biggest ethnic armed groups are leading the fighting to the Bamar in the same way that they have done so many times in the past. But there is, there is a process under the NUG's leadership which is quite representative of large part of the mm -hmm. country. Stein, uh, do you think that you'll get, one day you might get the... Uh, NUG's army marching onto Yangon or Naypyidaw or something like that? Is that how it would end or will there be some negotiation? I think, I think some negotiation. I think that if, if the NUG becomes also militarily stronger, then something will happen within the Tatmadaw that allows for negotiations. I don't, I don't see the NUG being able to build an army that can march into the cities 
that would happen if it got support from the United States of the same kind that uh, you see now going into Ukraine. And the NUG is now having delegations and ministers traveling around the world to try to get weapons. Uh, but I think their vision is that if they can uh, manage to get, for instance, Stinger missiles and down some airplanes from the Tatmadaw, that will make an impression that leads to a psychological change also in the military so that there can be negotiations on terms acceptable to the NUG. Uh, so maybe maybe this could lead to my next question, like uh, the role of external actors. Um, so we have seen that China said that we stand uh, with Myanmar. They are supporting the Tatmada, or they at least work together with them. And there are others who are very reluctant to, uh, for example, recognize the NUG or to like send weapons as we have as we seen in Ukraine. So maybe you can say something. Um, maybe. Tony, you can start and say something about like how important are these external factors um, and how do you assess the different actors? And I think Thailand plays a big role as well because most of the resistance, especially the leadership, are in the Bama Thai border area and Thailand plays a major role, I think, in this conflict. So how would you assess this position? Thailand plays a major role by not playing a major role in the sense that they like to keep... Thailand, from a national security standpoint, does not want the Tatmadaw on their border. And a way to keep them away is to fund the KNU and the Shan and the, in the past, the Bon, to uh, keep the border soft. And they, Thailand historically has tried to protect the Chao Phraya River Delta. And the way to do that has always been to keep adversaries between the big Vietnamese army that was in in the to the east for up until the 1990s and the burmese army which invaded thailand in 1767 and which is the subject of a lot of thai dramas even today um then to keep that big major army from coming in and they do that by using their neighbors and they did that in the east with thailand and cambodia you know right up until the, the negotiated peace uh in 1990 or so Uh, and it was, from a Thai perspective, very effective. The amazing thing that Thailand has done is they've created Thailand and Cambodia as normal neighbors now. You may not like their governments. They talk about, you know, Hun Sen and Cambodia. It's a, he's a dictator and all this kind of thing. But he's not the Khmer Rouge, though he may have been at one point. Uh, but he's, it's, a, it's a fairly normal border in Aranya Patet, and it wasn't in the past, or to going to Vientiane. Now, how do you get that to happen in the Burmese side? Uh, the Thai are in a position to do that, but they're not going to go and recognize Karen State uh, and provoke the Tatmadaw to invade. Or to, you know, that would, that would be foolish on the Thai part. Um, they've, ASEAN, I think, has a big role to play if they could ever get behind a policy And the Thai are central to that because they would, Aussie will probably go along with whatever the Thai recommend. But Thailand does not want to fight wars with its neighbors. But they will, they, and they want to keep the Tatmadaw away. And so that's why for the last, you know, 60 or 70 years, the weapons for those border areas have all come through Bangkok. The port in Bangkok is more important than the port in Rangoon or Yangon. Uh, and that's Thai, established Thai policy going back probably a couple centuries.
And Stein, maybe you can say something about the other big neighbor uh, to, to the north, China, and uh, maybe something to the Western, so-called Western perspective, or maybe the US. Yes, I'll try. Um, I think that the Asian neighbor states of Myanmar are all careful not to choose sides in any internal uh, conflicts in Myanmar. They navigate because they know that Myanmar will be there for the future and they don't know who is going to have power in the future. And this goes for uh, Thailand and India and Bangladesh. Also more distant Japan is discreet uh, and keeping contact with, with also with the military. Uh, then China is the most influential of all. And China is influential through its investments. And it had almost a kind of monopoly during the dictatorship. But that was at a price because Myanmar was not, not then included in the money-making world. So China wanted an opening of Myanmar at that time. And then they have developed their Belt and Road project with this big transportation corridor. And that's a key interest of China in Myanmar. So they must navigate in ways that does not destroy uh, their investments. And then China also has significant uh, control or influence over the armed groups that were the successor groups to the Communist Party, and mainly the largest of all the armies in Myanmar, the United Wa State Army, UWSA, which controls territories both on the Thai border and on the border to China, and has avoided open conflict with the Tatmadaw all the time since 1989. Uh, this this group then provides probably weapons to other groups, and the Kachin Independence Army is also under some Chinese influence. Um, it has also learned, I think, from the UWSA to not do too much fighting itself, but instead train other groups and provide weapons to other groups so they can fight in their areas. They did this with the Arakan Army. Uh, which was the main um, main insurgent groups in 2018 to 20. They did it with the TNLA, the Palaung Army in northern Shan State, and they now do it with the PDFs. So they train the PDFs and sometimes fight alongside them in order to train them. But they have been very very careful not to fight too much in Kachin, and this is a kind of Chinese uh, behavior as well. So that's, that's for the neighbor countries. In ASEAN, you have more engagement for uh, the interests of the Rohingya in Indonesia and Malaysia. And therefore, you have seen Indonesia and Malaysia de develop a policy that is very more, much more positive than other Asian countries, from my perspective, since I sympathize with the resistance. Um, the Malaysian foreign minister visited Norway recently and I had a conversation with him with he, where he really impressed me with his detailed knowledge of the situation in uh, Myanmar. So there are forces in ASEAN that, that try to give ASEAN a more central role in helping the people of Myanmar. The, 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 the power of the West is often very much exaggerated, particularly by those Westerners who think that the, Western, that the West interfered far too much. 
there, it's, there clearly was an inflow of many Western do-gooders in NGOs and diplomats and so on when Tain Saints uh, opened up the country. And they crowded some areas of Yangon. But the people in Myanmar only listened to them to the extent that it was necessary in order to get funding for their own uh, activities. And actually, the Westerners had very little real influence. Aung San Suu Kyi certainly did not listen to Western advisors, but had had her own views on everything and wanted to control everything. So this this donor community has had much less influence in Myanmar than in other countries in the world that are on the same low low level of uh, development. Then comes the, the United Nations. The United Nations has done far too little. And I think there is an expectation in Myanmar to see a more active United Nations. I'm not criticizing uh, Tom Andrews, uh, the uh, special rapporteur on human rights. He is extremely active. I'm not criticizing the special envoy to Myanmar, Nolin Heiser, who's also really doing her best and gave an impressive speech to the UN General Assembly. But I think I want to criticize the General Secretary himself for not having been sufficiently active when it comes to Myanmar. Please, Tony. Yeah, I, I have a question or a statement and an observation. Um, a couple of months ago, I wrote an op-ed in the uh, Irrawaddy about the Rohingya and saying that, you know, there's not a real good solution. Much of the pressure on has been coming for repatriation. And repatriation to Rakhine is not going to happen. And it's self-evident to anybody who follows Myanmar. I'm, I'm sure that the people in New York and Geneva wish it would happen, but it's something that's actually kind of stupid to do, given the situation in Rakhine. And so that was the tone of the, of the editorial. The ambassador to Thailand from Bangladesh contacted me after I published that, which has never happened before, because usually when you publish something, nobody contacts you. Um, but he contacted me. We had a couple long conversations about what role Bangladesh might play in this. It's a fairly neutral power relative to the other countries, and it's not part of ASEAN. Thailand has interests, China has interests, India has interests in Myanmar. Bangladesh is mainly just the recipient of the refugees from Rohingya. They've agreed to host them. They have their million refugees. They've hosted them and sometimes at conditions that are not very good. But that's the, the case for refugees around the world. Um, and he seemed open in the, to the idea that maybe Bangladesh could play some other kind of role. I'm not sure he had a, anything in mind. It was just one of these long, ongoing conversations. And I was wondering if the other countries that Stein or, or is familiar with, whether they have thought much about Bangladesh being involved in the peace process. Uh, China, China has. So China has also offered them once at one stage to serve as a mediator between Bangladesh and Myanmar. But I didn't hear much about it after the offer was made. Um, when it comes to the Rohingya, they are squeezed. Those those who remain in Rakhine, about I would guess four hundred thousand approximately. One million in Bangladesh, three four hundred thousand in diaspora, and perhaps four hundred thousand left in Rakhine. 
of them more than 100,000 in camps outside Sitve, uh, but also also close to 300,000 still living in villages. And they are squeezed between the Arakan army and the Tatnador. And this was really tough for them in the period when there was this heavy fighting between the Arakan army and the Tatnador from 2017-18 up to 2020. But right before the elections, an informal ceasefire was established between the Arakan army and the Tatnador. And this has more or less lasted until today, although we see now signs that there will maybe fighting again. And that will hurt the Rohingya's interests again. This, this, I think that rather than repatriation now, one should talk about the humanitarian situation for the Rohingya who remain in Rakhine. Because the key to allowing repatriation at some point in the future will be to in improve the conditions for the Rohingya in, in Rakhine. And an opportunity for that exists as long as this ceasefire lasts in Rakhine, which also has allowed some uh, international presence, including by organizations from the Muslim world, uh, feel strongly about the cause of the Rohingya. Um, so um, I would like to come to the last or one of the last questions. So, um, so far, I think it's fair to say that all peace efforts have failed uh, since many years. And Stan, you, you mentioned that the Western influence was much less than they had hoped for. And then um, that, that is especially I would like to talk about. So there has been a lot of engagement between, especially between 2012 and 2019, like experts from all over the world uh, came to Myanmar and shared experiences, Yeah, like from Colombia, from the Philippines, from Aceh in Indonesia. Uh, they all brought their experience. But somehow and some generals even traveled to those areas uh, to to see how those places have managed it so um but in the end it turned out to to not work and i would like to uh, ask so so what would we have to do differently uh, from a foreign perspective if someday a new window for peace talks would open in myanmar so so what is what needs to be done differently um if there is a chance to talk about peace Again, I, I think um, for the moment, the priority task for uh, Myanmar's friends abroad is, I think, humanitarian. People are suffering enormously. There are those who are killed and brutalized, and there are also those who suffer from losing their jobs and from a general um, recession of the economy. Uh, there is a health crisis. Very few people in Myanmar are vaccinated. I think it's less than 30%. So initiatives to create some kind of humanitarian vaccination or health corridor, probably through Thailand mainly, into Myanmar and where one puts pressure on the junta and on the NUG to promise not to interfere with the provision of health services and vaccination. This, I think, is, is a priority thing that we can do from abroad. Uh, when if, and then you ask what should outsiders do when peace talks can again happen. I think that the 
people who conduct such talks in Myanmar are going to control this themselves, no matter what foreigners do. So what we can do is we can try to look at what is happening and see if it's something that we are willing to support. And we can support what we think is, uh, is helpful and try to avoid supporting what is not helpful. But we should never imagine that we could in any way steer or control any peace process in Myanmar. But, but the question remains, though, what is helpful and what is not helpful? You, you would have to answer that question in a way, like uh, to explain, okay, this would help and this would not help. And what, what is your take on this? I, I think um, contact and talks are in general helpful. So if the parties uh, nominate someone, to serve as a negotiator with the others and they need some kind of support for such talks, I think that is helpful. In her uh, speech to the UN General Assembly, Nolin Heiser, I think, correctly said that what is missing now in Myanmar is the, a middle. There is little a space for advocating de-escalation or peace initiatives because of the enormous polarization that has happened. If this uh, middle starts developing and starts daring to speak their mind, and they are then um, victimized or they are attacked by the two sides because both sides dislike someone in the middle, then then they are people that are that should deserve various kinds of support, secretarial services or financial help. And Tony, what is your take on this uh, question? What to do, what to make different or do different? I think that one of the mistakes they made is that when they came in in 2012 and after is that they relied a lot on what they saw as best practices bring, coming from other parts of the world. Whether This is where these trips to Colombia and to Sri Lanka other places came up and there's nothing wrong with that but it sort of became the center and that they were sending in outsiders saying look we've brokered something successful in these other countries you should just follow what they do there was a lack of attention to southeast asia experts uh, people who knew the region who knew the ways of thinking and the history of the area a lot of people coming in on two-year contracts or less and making big recommendations and There's nothing, again, nothing wrong by itself with that, but that seemed to be like sometimes that was all they would do. They'd come in and have a scripted workshop that they were going to offer for how many hundreds of thousands of dollars across a particular area, do it, collect the data, and say, look, we were successful, and then leave. And I'm that kind of engagement doesn't work in the long run. What I think would work better is supporting the institutions that are there, starting with the more apolitical ones. And when you start with peace, usually it's the health ministries that have the best access to remote areas. People want to have vaccinations and health and anti-malaria efforts and other things. And they something that competing groups can usually agree upon. Um, the universities need to be stocked, uh, not just with, you know, it's a university I'm going is a monolingual institution, Burmese, which is perhaps not that appropriate. University of Mandalay, where I had some contact earlier, it's primarily uh, 
Burmese and a bit of English. You know, that making the those types of institutions more inclusive can be something that outsiders can help with. But it's probably not going to be the fly-in workshops, you know, they have the, the kits in a box with trying to remember what they had in Africa, the school in a box. They would come and open it up at an emergency place and say, here's your school. And that may work in an acute emergency. And it may be very important, but it's not a long-term plan for saying, okay, what kind of institutions does a place like Myanmar need in the long run? And they could be centralized. It could be decentralized. We don't have to solve that problem right now, but we have to keep an eye on the long run. And I would hope that the international community could start to doing a bit more of that. And that, that will have to do with the kind of people they send in uh, to work in places like that, their commitment to the region. Uh, it goes against the grain of you know people whose headquarters is in New York or Geneva and who are looking at a career. I want to be assistant deputy secretary of FAO or something in Rome. And Myanmar is just a stepping stone, uh, trying to get away from that kind of stepping stone career ladder. No, there are people out there whose career is Southeast Asia, maybe not Myanmar, but Southeast Asia, they have familiar familiarity with the people involved. They know the people going back five, 10, 20 years. They knew them when they were, it was the Tatmadaw when they were a lieutenant or a captain, and now they're a general if they're with the NLD when they were a youth recruiter. And that kind of depth has not developed in Myanmar, that kind of expertise. So. Okay, so thank you very much. Um, so um, I have learned a lot and I think there have been some important and interesting perspectives. And I think it's fair to say that uh, first of all, we have to take care of humanitarian aid to tackle the health and the economic crisis, as Stein pointed out. And I think we, it is also clear that Myanmar people, like meaning all people living in the country, have to negotiate and decide how to go about peace and how peace could look like. And that external forces could only be like a kind of facilitator or support, um, like financial support, uh, in some cases to find some middle ground, which will be needed someday uh, if negotiations would have to start. So um, yeah, thank you very much once again. And thanks to our listeners for listening to Myanmar in a potshell. Uh, please tune in again next time and have a good day. Thank you very much. Thank you.